All right, if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 2, or you can just look to the inside of your handout announcement sheet. Uh, Last week, we finished up the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, and these last two weeks, uh, I wanted to do something a little bit different because we haven't had large group all year, um, because we've had had so many folks, even this late in the year, uh, coming around and kind of checking out RUF. Uh, I'm going to do a couple talks this week and next week that I would normally do like at the beginning of the fall, Um, right? Because normally at the beginning of the fall, uh, people come and and do what I like to call campus ministry rush, where you go to RUF large group and you go to a different campus ministry social event and you go to church with this other campus ministry and you like see what's out there and what vibe fits you. And then you pledge, right? You go to a conference or you join a small group or that kind of thing. And so at the beginning of the year, I just want to be open and transparent about what is RUF? Uh, What's what's the vibe here? What's what's our thing? Right. Why do we need another campus ministry? Uh, Why does RUF think we need to be on campus? Um, I hope that if you're new, this will help you kind of catch the vibe of RUF, catch the feeling of it, uh, that if you've been around for a while, this will remind you of what we're doing here in the first place. Uh, And for all of us especially, I I hope that this will set the stage well for moving into next year with a little more normalcy, with a little more community, with a little more fun and energy and kind of shape our approach to how we do this RUF thing. Uh, To do all that, I want to look at a story about Jesus. If you've been around the church for a while, you've probably heard this story before. Uh, It's a familiar one. Uh, But again, I hope it will shape our approach to RUF because it tells us so much about Jesus. Uh, And I hope it will shape our approach to and interactions with one another as well. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray, and then we'll talk about what that means. Father, we thank you for your word, the truth that reveals to us about who you are, who we are, and what you've done to bring us back to yourself. I pray that you would help us to see all of those things as we look at this passage tonight. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So, again, familiar story, but what's going on in the story? Well, picture the scene. You've got a crowded house full of people listening to Jesus. Jesus has been out and about for a little bit, um, doing some healing, doing some miracles, calling a couple disciples to himself. And he comes back to Capernaum where he kind of started his ministry. 
and, and people get wind of the fact that he's here. So they come to visit, they come to listen to this preacher, and they're crowding into the house so much so that it's standing room only, right? It's spilling into the street. There's not even room to stand in the doorway and listen, right? They've got to get somebody like in the door to turn around and tell everybody outside what's going on. So you've got this crowded house with people gathered around listening to Jesus. And then you've got these four men who are carrying a fifth on a stretcher because this fifth man is paralyzed. We don't know if it's a recent thing or if he was paralyzed from birth, but regardless, he can't do anything for himself, right? And so these four men are bringing him to Jesus because they've heard that this Jesus is a miracle worker, right? He has the ability to heal. But again, the house is crowded. They, they can't get in by the door. So naturally, they climb on the roof. Right? Because when you can't get in by the door, you take the Santa Claus, Santa Claus route and go up to the roof. So they take this guy up to the roof, and Mark just kind of casually says they make an opening in the roof. Right, They cut a hole in the roof above this room full of people, and they lower this guy in by ropes so that he, he falls down, drops down in front of Jesus, which is pretty impressive. These are pretty good friends. Uh, and then Jesus does something surprising. Right? He looks at this lame man who can't walk. Right? His friends have gone through all this trouble to, to bring him on a stretcher, to get him up on the roof on a stretcher, to lower him down on a stretcher in front of Jesus. Right? He, he's obviously in great need, and Jesus looks at him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And you can kind of imagine the room going quiet. You can picture like looks of surprise and confusion on people's face. And maybe even like some people are embarrassed for Jesus, right? And, and you can, it's not hard to imagine one of his disciples, probably Peter coming up and tapping him on the shoulder and like pulling him aside and be like, Jesus, great job with the preaching. Um, forgiveness of sins, cool stuff. That's not why he's here, right? He can't walk. That's why he's come to you. And you've said your sins are forgiven. We'll come back to that in a minute. Jesus looks at the paralytic, says, your son, son, your sins are forgiven. And this really upsets some of the people in the room. In, in verse six, Mark tells us this. Let me open back up. Uh, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Scribes were the religious scholars of the day. They were the seminary professors. They were the theologians. Right? Their job was to know the Bible, which for them was the Old Testament. Right? And being so familiar with the Old Testament, they know that it's God alone who forgives sins. Right? I mean, we can forgive one another when somebody sins against us, but um, if Melissa over here um, stood up, walked across the field, and slapped Jesse in the face, right? And, and I, I looked at Melissa and said, Melissa, I forgive you. Jesse would be like, um, I'm sorry, that's not yours to do, right? She didn't slap you, she slapped me. Um, I get to decide if she's forgiven. But that's what Jesus does here, right? Nobody has sinned against Jesus in this room, but he looks at this man and says, I forgive you, right? And, and not just any man, a paralyzed man. What on earth could he have done against Jesus? And so the scribes, remembering that only God can forgive sins, think he is blaspheming, which basically means he's claiming to be God, right? Which is exactly right. 
Jesus here is announcing that he has the same kind of power. He has the same kind of authority that God the Father has. And to show that, he turns to the scribes. Now, if you read carefully, you can see that the scribes haven't said anything. Right? Mark tells us that in their hearts, they're, they're wondering about this. They're complaining about this. They're thinking, you know, who does this guy think he is? But Jesus turns to them. And in verse 8, he says, why do you question these things in their hearts? Right? Jesus knows what's in their hearts. They don't even have to speak for Jesus to know what they're thinking, to know what they're frustrated about. They don't have to say a word, and he knows why they're offended. But he interacts with them anyway, and, and he offers a question, one that's, that's kind of weird, that's, that's really without a clear answer. He says, which is easier to say, you're forgiven or be healed? It's a weird question because in one sense, like they're both easy to say, right? Like neither of them are tongue twisters, right? Like Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, right? It's not difficult to form the words, be healed or I forgive you, right? They're both pretty easy to say, but on the other hand, they're both impossible to say, right? Because who can forgive sins but God alone? And who can heal but God alone? Right? Only God can forgive sins and only God can fix what is wrong with this man physically. And so Jesus has set up the situation where there's no good answer to the question. But if he really is God, if he really is able to forgive sins, he should also be able to heal this man's legs. And so he says to the scribes, let me prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins. And he uses this phrase of himself, son of man. Uh, It's not just a random title that he gives himself. Uh, This is actually taken from an Old Testament prophecy that talks about God himself coming down to rescue us. And remember, these scribes, these Old Testament scholars, obscure Old Testament prophecies are their thing. And so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, they realize again he's calling himself God. Right? So he's claimed authority to forgive sins. He's taken the title Son of Man. And now he looks at the paralytic He says, be healed, and he is. He stands up, picks up his mat. Mark says immediately, right? Jesus says, be healed, and immediately the guy stands up. He doesn't have to do like some light yoga to get his legs warmed up. Like he just stands up, picks up his mat, and he's out the door. And the crowds are amazed to the point of praise. They glorify God. They say, we've never seen such amazing things. And that's the end of the story. All right, that's the story. What do we learn from this, right? Why does Mark put this story in his account of Jesus's life? Three years, Jesus, you know, traveled around, preached, healed, did miracles, all this kind of stuff. Why this story? And more than that, this story shows up in Matthew and Luke, right? So why did three out of four of Jesus's biographers decide that this story is important enough to include in their, their work about Jesus's life? Well, the key is in Jesus's words in verse five, son, your sins are forgiven. Remember, Jesus looks at this paralyzed man who can't walk, can't feed himself, can't work, can't bathe himself, can't do anything at all. And everyone in the room, right? Especially the paralyzed man, everybody in the room knows that his paralysis is his biggest problem in life. Right? It's obvious, right? Look at the trouble his friends went through. The guy was levitated down from the ceiling, right? He's desperate. But Jesus, 
who sees the heart sees a greater need. When Jesus tells this man who is in such obvious outward physical need that your sins are forgiven, he's telling him, he's telling everyone in the room, and he's telling everyone here tonight that our greatest need is not external, but internal. Our greatest need is to have our sin problem dealt with. It's my greatest need, it's your greatest need, it's the paralytic's greatest need, and that's what Jesus is here to meet. We imagine that we're pretty good at diagnosing ourselves. Uh, And this is pretty comical when I hear people talk about um, ailments that they think they have based on some WebMD research, right? You wake up with an upset stomach and you get on WebMD and check off some symptoms and like what you've eaten and you conclude that you definitely have scurvy, right? Like, or, or your knee starts acting up a little bit and you do some research on WebMD, you click some symptoms and you're like, yep, Spontaneous dental hydroplosion. That's definitely what I have. But we don't just do it with physical stuff, right? We do it with everything about us, right? We, we feel like we know what we need to be happy or to be whole, right? I just need some time to rest, right? I just need a break and then I'll be able to really focus on my schoolwork, or then I'll be able to be patient with my roommates, or then I'll be a decent human being to my parents, right? Anybody ever thought that? Like, that's what I need. I just need a break. I just need others to recognize my talent. I just need better friends, or maybe less needy friends, or more friends. I just need a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or I just need my boyfriend or girlfriend to change in these particular ways. I just need this professor professor not to be such a jerk. I just need a different roommate. I just need to lose 10 pounds. Does any of this sound familiar to any of you, right? We diagnose all the time what what we need and we're sure that if we get that, we're finally gonna be okay. We're finally gonna be happy, right? We'll finally do better in school or sleep better or be able to go back home without getting all anxious, right? Other people will like us and maybe, maybe we'll like ourselves, right? How is that going, right? How many times over the past year have you said, I I just need blank and then gotten it and nothing has changed, right? This story shows us that we're actually not very good at diagnosing our need. Jesus shows us that our greatest need is to have our sin problem dealt with. Why? Because what we are made for is a relationship with the Father, right? That's how we're designed. That's how we're wired. We are made to connect to and worship God. But our sin stands in the way of that, right? Our sin creates this separation between us and the God that we are designed to be in relationship with. And so if our purpose is to be in relationship with God and the thing that stands in the way of that purpose is sin, then that has to be our biggest problem. Remember from a couple weeks ago when we talked about the vanity of religion, that the heart of Christianity is Jesus dealing with our sin problem to restore us to a right relationship with God. Our sin problem, your sin problem and mine, is our deepest, most significant need. But none of us think that, right? Like when we're thinking about what we need, how we need to change, like having my sin dealt with is, doesn't jump to the top of the list, right? I need to exercise more, eat healthier, have a, you know, get up at a decent hour, to like deal with my sin, right? We never think in those terms. And Jesus just pulls back the curtain and shows it 
full force. But there's some, he, he shows us something else here as well. We tend to think of sin too shallowly or too casually or too lightly, right? Because when Jesus says to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, maybe there's a question that popped into your head. What sins, right? Dude can't even walk, right? Like what on earth is he supposed to have done that he needs forgiven, right? Because we tend to think of sin primarily as an active thing, right? Bad things that we do or, or things that, that other people do to us, right? And, and depending on your context, depending on your background, right? Like maybe you grew up in a strict religious context where, you know, the chief sins were don't drink, don't smoke, don't have sex, don't cuss, don't listen to rock and roll, right? Or, or maybe the only Christians you're familiar with are ones that have a view like this, right? Maybe you're just used to preachers who stand at the bell tower and scream condemnation at everyone who passes because of what they're wearing or doing or saying. Maybe your hesitancy about becoming a follower of Jesus is because you think, I don't need another set of rules, right? I already can't keep the catamount's care standards and my parental expectations and friend responsibilities. Like I don't need another layer of rules that I'm just not going to be able to live by. Whatever the case, right? In all of those situations, we're thinking about sin as something that we do, something that we commit, some transgression. But again, this guy is a paralytic and he can't do anything. And yet Jesus thinks that he has sins that need forgiving. This shows us that sin goes deeper than we think it does. Sin is a matter of, a, of the heart. It starts in the heart and, and then comes out in our actions. So even though this man is a paralytic, even though he's lame, Jesus can look at him and say, you have a great need. Your sin goes deeper than your actions. And taking it one step further, what, is it, what does this man do to, to earn this forgiveness from Jesus? Well, again, he's a paralytic. He can't do anything, right? This man's sin runs deeper than actions, and there's nothing within his power that he can do to make up for his sins. But Jesus looks at him and says, you're forgiven, not guilty. With this one phrase, son, your sins are forgiven, said to a paralytic, Jesus opens up a whole world of insight into, into our hearts into how we work, into our need, right? Insight number one, dealing with our sin is our greatest need. Insight number two, our sin problem goes deeper than we imagine. And insight number three, we can't do anything to change our hearts or earn our forgiveness. But here's the good news. Yes, we have a great need, but we have a greater savior. Jesus is not deterred by this man's infirmity. Jesus is not angry at his incorrect self-diagnosis. Jesus does not make him list his sins, right? Like, son, tell me your sins and like really sit in guilt for a minute before he offers forgiveness. Jesus does not give him a program of rehabilitation. Jesus simply looks at him and in compassion says, your sins are forgiven, right? That need, unnamed paralyzed man, that need that you don't even realize that goes deeper than you know, I will take care of it. That thing that stands in the way of you enjoying a relationship with my father, I will remove it. That heart that is oriented to all kinds of things instead of me, I will give you a new one. And to do this, 
Christ gives of himself. At the end of Mark, these same scribes will falsely accuse, try, and convict Jesus. And he'll be again surrounded by others, but not to hear him preach, but to scream condemnation at him, crucify him, to mock him and jeer him as he drags his cross to the hill. And Jesus himself will be paralyzed, right? His legs and his arms fastened to a cross of wood, unable to move, unable to do anything for himself. All of this to bear the penalty, to pay the cost for the sins of this paralytic and for me and for you. And because he paid with his perfect life, he can look at you and me and the paralytic and say, son, your sins are forgiven. What does this mean for us? Well, this means that if you think Christianity is just a list of rules, whether you're a Christian tonight or not, if you think it's a list of rules, you've missed the point. Jesus shows us that our problem goes so much deeper than the things we do. It's about our hearts. This means that if you think you need to earn your forgiveness or or pay back Jesus for your forgiveness, that you've got to perform some penance or prove how serious you are, you've missed the point. The forgiveness and new life that Jesus offers is free. You can't pay for it. You can't earn it. You can't repay it. All you can do is receive and enjoy it. This means that if you think becoming a Christian or being a follower of Christ means that you just do things a little bit differently, right? Like you tweak some habits, right? You say shoot and fiddlesticks instead of their like more colorful counterparts, then you've missed the point, right? The becoming a follower of Jesus is is not like tweaking a few things that are wrong with us, right? It's like having a heart of stone that's removed and turned into a heart of flesh that can feel and love Becoming a follower of Jesus is more like being dead, unable to do anything, and being made alive. Becoming a follower of Jesus is like being paralyzed and giving the ability to walk again. Right? It's not just a slightly distant, different existence. It's a a whole new mode of living. Right? We go from helpless to able to move. We go from dead to alive. Guys, this is what RUF is about. RUF is about Jesus our great savior for our great need. RUF is about grace, the grace of God. We wanna emphasize the grace of God that, that we're called to rest in what Jesus has done for us, not get really, really busy proving that we're worthy of it. RUF is about the humility that comes from this, right? Because if we are nothing more than paralyzed, paralyzed sinners who have been healed and forgiven, what on earth would we have to be prideful about? And RUF is about joy, about enjoying this forgiveness and renewed relationship with God. That is why we exist. So RUF is about the grace of God in Jesus Christ and living lives of joyful humility in response to that. That's what RUF is about. RUF is about the grace of God in the person of Jesus and living lives of joyful humility in response to that. And one more thing. We've got to mention the four friends, right? They, they seem to play this minor role in the story, right? They're there in like verses two and three, and then we don't hear anything else about them. But they play a critical role, right? Without them, this guy doesn't get to Jesus. Without their love and persistence, without their faith and hope that maybe in this Jesus, there's healing for their friend, this man doesn't get to Jesus. They are not the savior, 
but they drag this man to the Savior. I hope that's what the community of RUF is for you, right? A place where when you're paralyzed, when you're not able to bring yourself to Christ, when you can't even think of words to pray, that you have friends and a community and a fellowship, right? Reformed University Fellowship around you who will drag you to Jesus, right? People who will step into your life and say, I am not able to fix this, but I know someone who can. Let's go there together. That's what RUF is about. It's about the grace of God toward us in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's about us learning together what it looks like to live lives of joyful humility as we follow him. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you're a student at Western who is looking for a campus ministry, who's curious about Jesus, or who is simply looking for community, we would love to meet you. Follow us on Instagram at RUF at WCU. That's R-U-F-A-T-W-C-U for details about Bible studies, meetings, events, and more. If you're interested in supporting the work of RUF at Western as we seek to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve Christ, his church, and his world, you can do that by visiting www.givetoruf.org or contact us by sending an email to andrew.shank at ruf.org.